Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. Today, it is part three with Danny LaRue. In parts one and two, we looked at players who we thought would be the most likely breakout candidates, players to have significant or material improvement that would impact their team standings in the 2020 upcoming season. And today, we look at the other side of the coin, the other end of that aging curve, players who are candidates for regression in some material way that would impact their team. It's a mega conversation. It runs about 90 minutes. But before we get to that, a quick announcement about Patreon subscriptions. As of right now, the $4 a month tier, that's Patreon insiders, have been accessing data within spreadsheets. This season, this week, in fact, we're going to move everything over to backpicks.com. So you'll be able to access that there with your Patreon account. That means you get all player seasons, over 16,000 player seasons with all of these proprietary statistics and metrics. But in addition to that, you'll get uh, team data, you'll get relative team offenses, you'll get proprietary metrics as they apply to every team since 1955. And you'll get more data that's related to research. So for instance, as research is done during the season on different videos or podcasts like this one that you're about to listen to with Danny LaRue, I did a bunch of research for that on Uh, players improving or declining that you heard referenced in the last podcast, you'll get access to all that research as well on backpicks.com. In addition to that, we are opening up a Discord community. The idea here is to get a chat place where we can get together and have like-minded folks talking about basketball, both analytics and video in the same spot. Uh, Rob Antle, host of the podcast Basketball Stat, has been kind enough to help out and moderate that. So we'll have some other folks in there. I'll stick my head in from time to time. And there will be a new deluxe $7 Patreon tier. That'll get you access to a Q&A with me. It's designed to be a little bit more intimate, probably about once a month where we can sit down and talk about basketball or things that are happening within basketball. It's been very difficult for me to handle all of the questions coming from different places. So this is by far the easiest thing to do on my end. And in addition to that, all of the live 2020 metrics, the thinking basketball metrics that you see, passer rating, shot creation, everything else that I can't think of right now, that will also be available on backpicks.com to deluxe members during the 2020 season. So enough about that. Let's talk with Danny LaRue. Yeah, this should be interesting too. And I I feel like, I don't know if you, if you'll agree with me that I, I talked about the nebulousness on the front end of, you know, the passage of time element in particular, that you never know if it's going to be the year that somebody figures out. Sometimes whether I'm right or I'm wrong, I feel more confident on this side of it, just because I feel like we have a better sense of how somebody's going to age physically rather than how they're going to improve from a skill perspective because we don't get to see that sometimes it's the work they do in the offseason that's so fascinating because I almost felt like this side was more challenging for me because there if if you don't have a hint of the like if you get a hint and some of these players will discuss and certainly maybe you have some framework uh, we can lay out here but if you have a hint that someone is already starting to physically deteriorate a little bit or that that one or those one or two things that really made them successful in the league are starting to fall off just a bit. I feel like that is historically an extremely strong indicator that 
uh, they're gonna they're gonna age out or something like that. Obviously, um, there are other situations that actually. Let's pause and do that. Do you have uh, in in when we did younger players and guys improving and breaking out? You had a nice three part framework to look at. Do you have something similar for this side of the aging curve? It's actually identical. Uh, the way I thought about it for to prep for the last podcast. I deliberately structured it so that it was basically the same concept for positive growth and decline. And so the way to describe what those were, again, for people who who haven't listened to it or listened to it a while ago, the first group is the passage of time. So that is really, they're deteriorating typically physically. You know, your skill level doesn't necessarily go there, but, you know, maybe you you lose a step or a half a step, or you also, this can be recovery, or it can be propensity for more severe injuries. All of those sorts of things would fit in with passage of time for me. The second camp is paralleling the second camp last time is opportunity or situation change from a negative perspective. So this could be maybe a player was in a really good ecosystem. They had the the right role and then now they got paid by a new team and they're going to be in the wrong spot. And so they're going to be a, they're going to have a less successful season from that perspective. And then the third camp is um, in some ways more interesting on this side. Maybe I don't know exactly why it is that that I think that way. And that's players that I would say the broad camp is worse than people think. And that could be just they're overrated or that could be because what they did last year is prone to regression. So that could be a player who had a really successful season, but the ways they were successful might not be super repeatable. So it might not necessarily be that they're significantly worse as a basketball player, but they are less effective than they were last year, which I think qualifies, but is a little bit of a different category, but it's still in this conversation. Yeah, I had a bunch of guys who I felt like I, when I looked at them under the microscope, were already worse than maybe people thought. And then, so I don't know if we want to just... Oh, oh I, I have one. We can start there. Yeah, yeah. Let's start right there. DeAndre Jordan. I mean, DeAndre Jordan has I mean some of it is also the eye test. I noticed it with him about a year and a half ago that he just looked a little bit slower on defense and you know last year using uh, Jacob Goldstein's PIPM he actually was a was a slight negative overall but a, a positive on on defense as most centers should be because that's what they do. And I I was actually writing I'm doing a 30 team series for the Athletic right now and I was Basically, I have all these insinuations in the next Nets one, which I was working on yesterday, about the challenges for Kenny Atkinson if Jared Allen is already better than DeAndre Jordan for their purposes because of the equity that DeAndre Jordan has within the organization. Because, I mean, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving wanted to play with him enough that they were actually willing to leave real money on the table to do so. And that means that he has import within the organization from management on down. So he's interesting to me because I actually thought he had already dropped off enough that like he moved past my worst than you think category, if you will. I was like, I was like, man, there was so much decline, especially on the defensive end. You know, it's one thing to have plus minus numbers. And so when you look at his defensive RPM, when you look at his defensive PIPM, those are driven by on off plus minus numbers. And there's noise in those numbers. And my guess is there was noise in his favor having seen him play last year. It's not that he was a terrible defender last year, but to your point, there was some decline probably even observable the season before. And so, yeah, I guess I'm so I guess I'm so on board with this one that I actually took him off my radar right away because I was like, "Wait a second. That's almost cheating because 
Jordan, to me, has already he's already in the heart of his decline. But to your point, uh, will he? And I know you're a big Jared Allen guy, so I think you know the first question is: Is he going to? How many minutes is he going to take away from Jared Allen? And if the Nets and company have this impression that he's a guy who still has it and is still going to play, then I suppose that that decline is only going to be magnified. It's interesting because, I mean, we've seen the inclination for coaches, and I probably support this, for centers to just not play that many minutes in the first place. So it isn't as hard to play two centers a combined 48 minutes than it is, let's say, point guard, where, you know, if you had two starting caliber point guards, they're each going to play 30-plus, probably like 32. So like last year, Allen was the unambiguous starter, even though Ed Davis was, of course, a capable backup. Allen played 26 minutes, and... It's not like he was in foul trouble enough to think that that materially affected his numbers. So I think that 26 will drop. I think it will drop maybe like 22 or so. But the bigger question for me is, and and you could think about this from an on-court perspective and a mental psyche perspective, which minutes does he play? I think for Allen, especially considering, you know, he had a good year last year and the possibility that I started basically started out this podcast with that he's better than DeAndre Jordan— well, is is he going to be okay if those 22 minutes come not at the opening or closing or in significant minutes of games? And I could imagine that being hard for him now. There's not much that he can do. Maybe he and his agent can agitate for a trade because Jordan's under contract for so long, but it's not like they can force that. It's not like he has a must-trade clause or anything silly like that. So I wonder how that's going to go. And also I wonder about it because, as I said, the contractual situation, that this isn't a holding pattern. This is not a situation where, oh, you know, these are two trains passing in the night. We happen to have an overlap for a year. Jared Allen has team control because of restricted free agency. He'll, he has team control for a long time, and DeAndre Jordan's under contract, too. He played 69 games last year. What, what do you think that number is this year if you, had to, if you had to land an over-under on that? I mean, Jordan had been remarkably durable over the, the course of his career overall. That's not a, a, not a big surprise. I mean, he's... he's just he's a big dude and and he's he hasn't really gotten in those for trouble even when he looks like DeAndre turns an ankle he still is generally generally able to to roll with it but I, I think it'll probably actually be a little higher than that because remember the unusual circumstances that led to him playing that few games for comparison Jared Allen played 80 last year because he was stayed healthy and presumably DeAndre Jordan is not going to be on a team as moribund as the Knicks were last year so They'll want to keep playing him. They'll want to be competitive. They're at bare minimum competing for the playoffs, more likely in the playoffs. So I think he'll I think he'll play a solid amount. You know, he won't play if he's hurt, but DeAndre doesn't get hurt that much. Yeah, I think if he plays that much, I don't think the drop-off from last year to this year will be perhaps as stark as I think it's been in the last season or two with him. But to your point of this category, if you're if you're under the impression that he's you know, still been the DeAndre Jordan of old, especially defensively, then yeah, absolutely, absolutely going to be worse than you think. The guy who really jumped into that category in my mind, who I just kind of jotted down and have been thinking about this when looking at him, and he's also in a new situation with a new team, and I think he's worth worth discussing here for a second, is Wes Matthews. Yeah, Matthews is interesting. I actually had him in a different category, but I'm fine with him being here too. Matthews, this will be his age 33 season. Took him a little longer to get into the NBA and establish a role, and 
this is actually more more when that's those sorts of things come to roost. We might see the same thing with Taj Gibson at some point, though he's a center, so it's a, little, a big, so it's a little bit easier. And yeah, Matthews changed teams. You know, ended up basically starting for 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 the Pacers because of Victor Oladipo's injury. That's why he chose to go to the Pacers. But as a as a Buck, and you know, he's going to have the opportunity with Malcolm Brogdon being gone there, but. Yeah, I could, uh, that's a very fair thing, and I'm, I'm guessing you have some data that you want to bring up there as well. Well, uh, you mentioned that he started last year. One of the first things that jumped out to me, which really connects to this DeAndre Jordan idea that we started with, is Wes Matthews has started almost every game he's ever played in, in his NBA career. I, I didn't even realize that. You know, when he was a rookie in Utah, he started a bunch of games, and then ever since, he's basically been... Uh, a penciled in starter wherever he goes and yet I think over the last few seasons I mean this again is one of those like already already not that good or worse than you think kind of situations where what's left with Matthews I think the counter argument here is that if Milwaukee needs somebody in that position to shoot spot up jumpers he still might be able to do that but everything else everything surrounding that and with the Bucks, I'm also thinking forward to the postseason how effective can he be in minutes that he gives them under that cauldron when they really need really strong minutes from that position we saw last year I think there were times when Eric Bledsoe and Bledsoe's lack of shooting was a was a big issue in balancing the floor for them when teams schemed against Giannis in the postseason. And so again, I look at that guard position for Milwaukee with championship championship aspirations as a huge position on the floor. And when I look at Wes Matthews, he's a guy who, you know, his numbers have trended down or they just haven't been very good for a decent amount of time. I think this is an amazing stat for, for Matthews. He is among active players, and I this is using basketball reference, so I don't know what their definition of active is right now in terms of who they filtered out, but he's 40th among active, 41st among active players in terms of minutes played career. And remember that he started his career at age 23 in 2009-2010. That's how many minutes he's played over these last few years. He's averaged 32-6 in the regular season over the course of his career. That is a ton of minutes for him. Yeah, I think the the com and and wear and tear like when when I look at him now compared to the last few years, there's definitely an eye test component with him where the wear and tear and the age combination leave me, you know, looking at a guy who certainly didn't look like he did when he was 28. Let's let's put it that way. Yeah. So, yeah, and and that's why he kind of goes into a couple boxes here. I think we can do a little bit of a a side a sidetrack with two guys who I had trouble with this exercise because it depends on what we're considering for the potential downgrade. And there's a parallel with them because they both are going to play high leverage minutes for Eastern Conference contenders. And that's Mike Scott and George Hill. George Hill wasn't particularly good a lot of last year, but he did do well in the playoffs, was an important part of the success that the Bucks have. And now with Malcolm Brogdon gone, presumably he's going to be a more important part of the rotation. So... I think there's a decent chance that he's better than he was, well, especially for the Bucks at the end of the regular season when he actually wasn't that good. But, you know, like once they acquired him, once they acquired him around the deadline. But I do think that he'll be worse in the playoffs. And if and if John Horst and Budenholzer and whoever think they're getting that George Hill, then that could be a big problem. And it's sort of the same thing with Mike Scott, who was effective and important during the Sixers playoff run, but that was a little bit too rosy. So it just depends on what, what what lens we're using. Man, George Hill's been around for a while, hasn't he? 
doesn't it kind of doesn't feel like it, but this will be his age 33 season and he came into the league in 08 09 and that's an that's an interesting one because he was he I felt like he was up and down last year anyway, but you think by the postseason this year he won't be someone giving giving good minutes basically. That's that's what you're saying with Hill. He might be able to in the limited context that the Bucks need for a kind of secondary creator next to Giannis, but if the Bucks are relying on him to initiate, especially when you think about some of the teams like the Sixers that they could be playing in the playoffs, that could end up being a big problem. You know, if he is their real backup point guard, if he's the guy who's supposed to be getting things done when Giannis isn't on the floor, depending on how they want to use Eric Bledsoe, somebody who might come up later, then that will be uh, that that could be a challenge for them. And the Bucks, without Brogdon, have this challenge of how are we going to fill the gap? And they they did it through a couple of different ideas. Hill being one of them, and I wonder how those are going to work out. Do you think the Bucks make a move, a, a significant move? I mean, when I this conversation we're having, and then just the entire sizing up of that roster, especially compared to last year, where you have guys like Brogdon uh, and Miritich who aren't there anymore. Do do you see them making a sort of key move to uh, retinker with some of these parts before the deadline? It's possible, but I also think that the Bucks are going to be a good enough team that they won't feel the urgency to do so. And, I mean, depending on how the Sixers and a few other teams look, but that, I, mean, I think they're going to be the best regular season team in the league and possibly by a margin, by a significant margin because they're set up for it and they can crush bad teams. They can beat damn near every good team all the time too. So they won't have that urgency, especially with, I don't see a team like the Raptors really coming on. And yeah, the Sixers can be that, but they're kind of a different sort of team, especially this year. It's... We'll see how that works out, especially if their offense is a little bit stagnant to start the year, which I think is a possibility. So I don't think they're going to have that urgency. And then the other huge factor here for the Bucks, whichever way this plays, is I wonder how willing they are to put on significant financial overlays. Like, for example, uh, Nate and I got asked when we did a Patreon podcast about a hypothetical where they effectively traded... Ersan Ilyasova and a first-round pick to the Sacramento Kings for Bogdan Bogdanovich, a move that I think would make the Bucks significantly more interesting. I'm also fairly low on Ersan Ilyasova. Somebody else is going to come up later. But that would bring a huge financial consequence because Bogdanovich is about to be, let's call it properly paid as a restricted free agent, and that would push them into immediately the luxury tax for the 2021 season, and then in, theoretically, depending on what Giannis does, into the repeater tax after that. Hmm, very interesting. The let's go back to Mike Scott for a second before we move on. I I think looking at the Philly roster, there's actually a lot of opportunity for Mike Spot Mike Mike Scott in spot minutes. Mike Spot, uh, boy, let's try that sentence again. Uh, opportunity for Mike Scott in spot minutes, uh, given the fact that Philly's depth is to me one of their biggest concerns of that roster construction. I have my own thoughts on. Horford and extra bigs and all that, but there's certainly going to be moments where they will need his minutes. And given that I don't think of Mike Scott as a particularly strong NBA player anyway, I actually think you could make the argument you could cut the other way, where if he gives them enough in flash duty or his shooting is, you know, able to hold water or whatever, that Maybe he has a season where in later in the playoffs, people are saying, oh, Mike Scott, like important, important run that he put together for Philadelphia this year. It, it gets into an interesting question. I think I know where you go on this because I think we think the same way, which is even with all of that, 
if it gets to actually important games, would you trust him? No, probably you know, not. I, yeah. Yeah, and so that that's the real the real crux of this for a player like Mike Scott is he can be valuable and teams need to be judicious and and they can and there's value to be had. Not every player needs to be a 50 minute or sorry, a 30 minute a game playoff, you know, crucible type of player. Like that that's unreasonable. You don't have to expect that from everybody. Lou Williams is a great example of this. Like Lou Williams is awesome, but he has limitations. So, you don't have to think that with Scott, but if let's say the coaching staff thinks that he can be different or they, you know, they need that offensive burst and then they, and then he has like a gigantic brain fart on defense and it becomes a problem. That sort of thing can be there. So yeah, it, it's interesting with him. We could transition into somebody else. And this is a complicated one for me because I think that he, A, is worse than people think. And I thought it was prominent for a lot of last season, but is now in a significantly better situation, which may paper over it. And that's Avery Bradley. So Bradley last year had this really Harvey Dent season where when he was on the Clippers, he was absolutely dreadful. He was a, His defense didn't look nearly as good to me. He had a 46% true shooting, no usage, basically. Then he gets traded to Memphis basically as an afterthought in the Jermichael Green chain, which actually worked out very well for the Clippers because they got, they got Jermichael Green and Garrett Temple, and then the Memphis got a much, for whatever reason, a much better Avery Bradley. So for those sorts of reasons, my inclination is always, especially for a guy who's going to be in his late 20s, to say the decline is more real than the 14-game bump, but now he gets to play with LeBron James, and that will offensively tone up a lot of what Avery Bradley, his limitations, because he's always been best when he has the ball in his hands the least, and playing with LeBron James should open that up. Boy, Avery Bradley is an interesting mention. I think the... I think the biggest challenge for me with Bradley is that people thought he was better than he was. And and some of that was probably points per game bias back when he was in Boston. But he's always been a fairly specialized player to me in terms of the ability to hit jumpers. He's a good cutter out of the corners. He possibly can hit some spot-up threes. And then his defense is good on ball. Of course, that's his reputation, but uh, his height... And some of the other things, certainly as a help defender, never really blew me away. And so you have a guy who, if you put up numbers and you can hit some jumpers and you're very engaged on ball D and you can and you can stay in front of guards and force some turnovers every once in a while, you raise a lot of eyebrows, you get a lot of attention. But that's the kind of player to me who never really was that good in the first place. You fast forward now to where we are near the end of his career, late 20s, things like that. And I, my, my thinking here going into Los Angeles is he has an opportunity to excel based on just those specializations, meaning he's not going to be an all-star, he's not going to blow everyone away, but his role to match up with small guards defensively or lead initiators defensively, I guess, and then hit jumpers that LeBron and Anthony Davis create for him I think this role is tailor-made for him to bounce back and you as you said in in Memphis uh he he played better I think there's more there I don't know what about the claim that he lost 40 pounds is that is that a thing it's interesting I mean you you get in there's been the renewed interest in reporting of these sorts of things but a lot of times with players you know with their weights obviously it is self-reported I mean I don't think we have some sort of independent verification that but yeah, I don't know. And and certainly he has the motivation to be in shape this year. It's going to be a, 
a huge a huge definitional one for his career and you might even say, like some would say hey well he has a player option for next year so there's an as much urgency but he might still be able to strike while the iron is hot here i mean this is going to be bradley's age 29 season if he can convince somebody that he's still quite good at playing basketball he can get that last big contract there's going to be money out there this year though it's mostly for young teams and all that but yeah bradley bradley's an interesting one and my instinct is that i think his defensive reputation is is already overstated i think it was basically the whole time especially because he's so much more of an on ball guy than in a team concept and the league is in general moving kind of away from that with switching and screening and everything else like that but also because bradley is in that camp i'll talk about this in one of the other groups a lot more where losing a half a step losing a full step let's say that happens or whether it's happened over the last couple years and he just hasn't played on teams where we had to notice it as much that makes a much bigger difference because if those small guards are a little bit faster than he is then the tools that he has aren't as useful. And yeah, that's I agree. A possibility. Yeah, I agree, and that's why I thought of the weight loss, which I don't think he lost 40 pounds. I think that's a classic exaggeration. But if you saw the preseason game the other night or any of the training camp uh, clips, he does look a little quicker, and I think, again, that works in his favor. I see, again, to me, this is a guy who is a specialist, and I think the moral of the story here is that he wasn't, uh, you know, a great player in the first place uh, earlier in his career. These were things that people noticed and overvalued. But I am kind of interested to see if he can play a key role. I think there's the opportunity there to have a season that people might, and again, the numbers, you know, he might average seven points a game or something. But in terms of value and the way he plays, to have a season that people think is more uh, positive. Well- and that ties in with the last part of Avery Bradley that's worth discussing. This sort of ties back with the first person we talked about in this section with DeAndre Jordan is will Bradley be better at what at his overall role than some of the other options they have? I, I mean, Contavious Caldwell Pope to me has similar, you know, he has similar strengths and weaknesses and it's good that they have a lot of these guys. And Danny Green is to me a, a meaningfully better player than both of those two. So how will Frank Vogel, assuming he retains the job for the remainder of this year, how will he manage those players, both in terms of who does better and then who actually plays? And that will be worth watching, too. Yep, great point. It's it's an interesting team in that those lineups will be very fluid, somewhat political. And I would assume in most situations, the guys, the starting five at the beginning of the game will be different than the closing five at the end of the game. Do you have anybody else in this category, like kind of regression to the mean worse than we think? Because I have one more, which I think will be interesting. But if you have others, we, we can talk about them. The only guy I really wanted to mention in this category as well, and I don't really want to spend too much time on him because he's with the Knicks now, but that's Marcus Morris. Mm-hmm. And again, just looking at him, it's sort of like he had, a, he had a great season shooting the basketball last year. He shot well in Boston. I liked the pickup from Boston's perspective, and I thought he fit well in what they needed. He helped them with what they needed in the last two seasons. But going into the sort of malaise of New York, the glut of forwards and six foot eight players they have. Uh, I just, I'm not sure the entire thing is going to look very good at the end of the season. So he was the only other real guy who I looked at in that category. And Morris, he also kind of, for me, was bridged into the opportunity change group because it's a lot easier for a player like him as, assuming he can buy in enough to look better in the, in the Celtics, you know, like where he's exactly. a smaller cog right. in a big machine than where the inmates to an extent might be running the asylum in New York just because they have so many shoot first guys. And so can you 
create a system of accountability when there, there are so many players who just aren't really wired that way? Like, can he see Bobby Portis just jacking up shots and say, oh, no, I need to be within the team concept and not do that? No, I, th- I think he's going to buy in, and that, that will really hurt. And my last guy is, this is a hard one for me because I was so impressed with what he did last year, and there is a a, a meaningful chance that it is at least mostly real. But that's Nikola Vucevic. And Vuce had the best year of his career by a mile and a half last year at age 28. His career high true shooting before last year was just under 55%. 57-3 on a career high usage. Also, incredibly importantly, the Magic defended very well when he was on the floor. Some of that is having John Isaac, who we talked about at length in the in the breakthrough part of this podcast, and Aaron Gordon on the floor with him. But Vooch is kind of the prototypical regression to the mean guy here. And what I mean by that is he's a very good player and he can have a very good season, but that could still be worse than how he did in 1819 because that was ridiculous. I'm glad you brought him up because I, I also agree he is the classic regression to the mean type of player where he had a season that maybe was a little bit over his head. But I do think there's a lot that's real there. His, his post-scoring game, his mid-post passing was better. He's just a skilled player, and I see him still having a good season. But to your point, I think he is a strong candidate for sort of classic regression to the mean. I'm also glad because uh, consistent with the first part of this podcast that we did last week, the the he didn't he didn't make my list. He didn't make any of my categories. So I'm happy that you brought him up. Another guy I wanted to bring up and really almost falls into so the note I had next to this next person is just needs to stay healthy. And that guy right off of Vucevic playing over his head having an incredible season is Danilo Gallinari. And Danilo Gallinari, this is a stat that kind of blew me away. In the last 9 seasons, so that's basically after like his first year or two in the league. In the last 9 seasons, Gallinari has averaged 49 games per year. And this isn't just, you know, an outlier. He has really, really struggled to stay healthy. And I think as he gets older, height ages very well. And he's extremely skilled, especially when it comes to shooting and scoring and all that sort of face-up and and mid-post operation that he was so good at last year. But first of all, I expect a regression off of that three-point shooting. I'm not quite sure he can keep it in that 43 to 44% range, even though he is a phenomenal shooter. So there's a potential there for a small regression. But the note I had here and and just wanted to throw out at you is, uh, you know, what happens if he plays 45 or 50 games again for Oklahoma City? Can he handle that slightly larger load? What's a reasonable number of games to expect? And if he doesn't hit that and he has nagging injuries, what does the season look like, especially compared to last year? Gallo's fascinating case. He made my list too. I, I put him actually in the opportunity or situation change. And I agree with you that health is a primary determining factor for him. Gallo last year, I mean, played in 68 games before he really got hurt. I had him as a fringe emphasis on the word fringe, all NBA kind of candidate because he was so important to what the Clippers were doing offensively. And they had so much turnover on that team. He was a huge positive force for them and had a really underrated offensive season. As you mentioned, 43% from three, considering he hadn't broken 39% since his rookie year. It's pretty reasonable to say that he could do, he's really damn good shooter, but 40% might be a little bit, a little bit too strong to expect, even if it can happen. And 
you brought up the idea of games played, and, and games played will be an interesting test for Gallo if he's still in Oklahoma City at the end of the season, because let's say the Thunder are better than some people think, but still well out of the playoff mix. Are they really going to push Gallinari and Chris Paul very hard? Because what would the incentive be? Gallinari is a pending unrestricted free agent, so maybe it's a little bit different, but I think he could explain away like a proactive sitting far more than a injury-based sitting. So it might be a circumstance where he's healthier towards the end of the year and just says, hey, I made it out scot-free, just let me go. And that the Thunder would say, sure. But it ties in with a really important thing that my readers will probably be familiar with. I wrote actually about this to an extended fashion last week, is there are so few teams that have cap space in the summer of 2020, it's concentrated very narrowly, that proactive agents for players like Gallinari, and you could make an argument Serge Ibaka here, would have been Kyle Lowry, except that he's has a unique situation in Toronto, and just extended. Congratulations to Kyle Lowry. But Gallo in particular, considering where the Thunder are and all these draft picks that they're owed because of the Paul George trade and everything else, I could imagine him, more accurately as agent, trying to finagle his way to a team that would be interested in using Gallo's bird rights. Because in that circumstance, it doesn't really matter how much cap space is out there. That team will just can just resign you at a reasonable number. And that creates another suitor and everything else like that. So maybe that ends up working out in Gallinari's favor, where it might not even be like a huge value trade for the Thunder, but it's them doing right by him, getting him to a more competitive team that might be willing to pay him long term. I don't know who that team is, but Gallinari's an awesome player. So if he's healthy, I could see it happening. Anything else? Uh, fascinating uh, point you just made there. Anything else on Gallo before we move on to someone else? Uh, no, I, I think that's about about it on him. I at full strength, as you mentioned, I think he's a, a really good player, and there's a you know, and I and I think he could be a really positive part of this Thunder team, a team that I have been pretty vocal about saying is better than. Many expect. I mean, I think their over-under is like 31 or something like that. They have way more talent than that. And Gallinari, even though this team won't have the same kind of spacing and flow, also I'm a little bit skeptical that Billy Donovan will use him as well as Doc Rivers did, but he's still a, a very talented basketball player, and the Thunder need offense in every way they can so he can help. So while we're on sort of regression candidates from guys who just had really good seasons last year another name for me and there's a little opportunity here as well but another name for me was Nemanja Bjelica Mm -hmm. who right who not only played very well and shot the ball well and was part of this Kings story and uh, uh, as people who listen know uh, Kings are one of my favorite league pass teams Uh, love watching them but as we talked about last time I think there's more coming I think Marvin Bagley has more coming I think more minutes are going to go to other front court players in their situation. And that combination to me of where Bielitsa was last season, uh, he's already at his age 31 season, sort of, I can see him getting squeezed a little bit into more of a specialized stretch or, you know, we want to play him only with these lineups. And especially if they get near playoff contention, I'm not actually sure how many huge, great minutes he's going to be able to get them. So that was just another guy uh, on my radar for, you know, really good season last year, who's a candidate to kind of fall back just a bit. Oh, absolutely. And the Kings have an overstuffed rotation, especially in the front court, depending on how they're going to manage Heald and Bogdanovich in particular. If they're going to give both those guys significant minutes, some of those are going to come at small forward. They also have 
you know, Harrison Barnes. And as you said, Bagley's probably going to get a lot of minutes depending on how Luke Walton and management sees Harry Giles. Like Sacramento, I could totally imagine them giving more minutes to people than that would surprise us. And because the idea of maybe playing the long game, and then that's going to squeeze out guys like Bielitsa who haven't been paid recently and do not have the sort of equity within the organization that somebody like Harrison Barnes does. So then it has to go somewhere. And Bielitsa's contract structure is notable here as well, because he has, he is under contract theoretically for 7.2 million for the following season, but that is fully non-guaranteed. So, Sacramento, if they want to, can walk away from it, or they could theoretically trade him. It could be a, a Derek Favors situation if somebody thought that Bielitsa was worth that kind of money. They could just trade him somewhere else if they don't want him. Anyone else in this category while we're here for you? No, that's really about it. There, there are other guys who kind of fit in this, but also are, I, I would say... Actually, I'll put another guy here. He's in two camps for me. I listed him in another one, but DJ Augustine... I mean, Augustine... <laughs> he was he was the next guy I was going to mention. Yeah. Age 30... This is going to be his age 32 season. Had a really nice year for the Orlando Magic, a team that needs offensive creation wherever they can get it. And if Augustine takes even... A, whether it's a regression of the mean step back or a physical capability step back, it becomes important not only for him as a pending free agent, but for the Magic as a burgeoning you know, playoff team, especially if their defense is actually this good, then in some ways, in some ways they could become a, it would be a a bigger deal for them if Augustine doesn't meet expectations, if they're actually good, than if they're just a little bit worse because then the stakes are lower. So I'll make the counter argument just because I ended up looking at him and thinking, "Ah, I think there's enough there that he can still have a similar season to last year. And that is essentially that his passing has improved as a skill and his shooting is still phenomenal and arguably has improved over the course of his career. And I think if you're going to hold on to something as a small guard, uh, and we'll talk more about small guards in a few minutes when we get to some other players, but I think if you're going to hold on to something, it's this skill based of passing and shooting. If that's the thing you're excelling at and he can still do that, I still think he can have a similar kind of impact to the year before. Yeah, that's totally fair. And Augustine especially to use Nate's terminology is a great pick and roll operator and he's playing with exactly the same surrounding pieces as before. So there's totally reason to think that that will continue. Vooch was, you know, the Vooch Augustine pick and roll stuff was fantastic last year and they have the same coach and they have the same surrounding guys. It, it should work out really well. So that's a good argument. One other guy, this is another player who is in multiple camps, but I, the regression of the mean is just as good a place to talk about as anybody. One of my favorite stories of last year, Blake Griffin, Griffin, age 30 season, but his lower body, he's had a lot of problems over the years. And last season, it's remarkable considering the career that he's had, that you could make an argument, at least offensively, but probably overall, that it was his best season. Griffin was awesome offensively. Uh, He had the highest usage of his career, 30.2% using basketball references definition of of usage, which is different, I believe. And close to his career high, true shooting at 58.1, which is remarkable when you consider that in his early career, he was doing so much dunking that you would, that would prop up his percentages, but he's been become such a better shooter, much to his credit. So like Vooch, I could imagine Blake Griffin from a per minute basis having a very good year that just isn't quite as good as last year when he was just awesome. And then the added weight for Griffin is 
availability and playing time. So he's kind of a hybrid of Gallinari and Vooch because Blake Griffin last year, you know, he played 75 games, had not played more than 67 in any of the previous five years. And that 67 was the mark was his high by like five or six. So if he plays 65 or fewer, then that becomes a big problem, both in terms of the Pistons season, but also in terms of his value to the Pistons. Danny, are you looking at my notes over here? Blake Griffin, uh, way up my board for the exact same reasons that you just outlined I think is, is it crazy to you that he's only 30 yes he's been in our consciousness for such a long time and remember like all the weird stuff like he went to he stayed at Oklahoma and then he missed his rookie year right. his original rookie year but it's so it hasn't been as long of it as long of a career as you know as, as some other guys but because he was such a big deal when he was in college I mean so Blake Griffin this is pretty amazing He's only played 604 NBA games over the over the course of his career. Uh, for the sake of comparison, Eric Gordon has played 629. That's actually it's more than John Wall, but not that many more than John Wall. It, he's played the same number of games actually exactly as Paul George. So and, I I think the thing that psychologically has happened is he's evolved so much as a player. There's just so much has happened with him where he was such a dunking, crazy athletic force when he came into the league. And then the thing that's really impressed me is his passing ability. Obviously, uh, I mean, just for a guy of his size to have the handle and move around the court the way he does. But then, of course, that outside shooting, which is rare for those kinds of incredible, big athletic players. And so I think that's an incredible testament to... Blake and the season he was able to put together last year. I wasn't quite as high on it as everyone else, mostly for defensive reasons. But looking looking up and down sort of the the profile, and it, I was like, hmm, he's, he's younger than you would think, not just because of that, but because of the way he moves, the wear and tear. Uh, I am concerned. The other thing I'm concerned about is situation. So how hard is he going to go or want to go? How big of a load is he want to going to want to carry if Detroit is, you know, 25 and 32 heading into the All-Star break or or something like that. So he was actually way up my board here on guys who check a number of boxes because there's a little bit of regression candidacy based on last season. There's some age stuff, there's some injury stuff, there's some there's some team circumstance stuff. So, uh, yeah, I'm right there with you on Blake Griffin. Do you have anybody else since I'm since I'm stealing from your notes? Is there anybody that I'm missing from your notes in this kind of area? I think most of the remaining guys I want to talk about have some combination of age or age and circumstance. So uh, specifically, you know, when we get to the Toronto Raptors, that's an interesting team to yeah. right to think about. But but before we go there, and I'm not sure if he's if he's uh, on your list. Certainly, we can dive in. But a guy I just left as a question mark was, and this is again really about age, you know, age 34 season coming up. He's been in the league for a long time, uh, still very effective at the things he does, just has that like wily veteran presence that I really couldn't look at and say, yeah, I think he's going to take a step back. But had a question mark next to his name based on age, and that's Paul Millsap. Wondering what your take on him was. I had a question mark next to Paul Millsap's name as well. (laughs) And I think that a part of that a part of the Millsap question for me is more of a big picture one and that's it appears that Denver's front office brought in Jeremy Grant to be the long-term power forward 
And what does that do to Paul Millsap's opportunities? And remember, we brought this up in terms of DeAndre Jordan and Jared Allen, where it's easier to split that pie. Front court minutes for the Denver Nuggets are a tough play because Nikola Jokic is the alpha and the omega. So you're you're starting with him getting his, and then you're splitting everything else out. So I know I've heard people talk about Jeremy Grant potentially getting some minutes at the back of five. Remember, they also still have gold medalist Mason Plumley, and who is very popular, it seems like, with the coaching staff and is still you know making a ton of money this year. And maybe they'll try Jeremy Grant at the three. But if, let's say, it becomes apparent to Mike Malone, to Karnasovas, to Connolly, that the guy they need to be focusing on is Jeremy Grant, well, then Paul Millsap just becomes less of a priority. And with the structure of the Nuggets, the more time you spend with Nikola Jokic, the better you're going to look. And so that could be a decline. And also, this is such an important evaluation year for Millsap in particular, but also the Nuggets more broadly, that there are big stakes there considering he's definitely going to be an unrestricted free agent and Jeremy Grant probably will be as well. Do you buy the idea that Millsap is a steadying force next to Jokic defensively because of some of Jokic's limitations there? Yes, absolutely. And their Millsap throughout throughout time, I mean, I, I think that this is an interesting idea with Jokic. This could potentially tie in with breakout candidate Carl Anthony Towns we talked about before. A lot of times, centers who aren't super good at defense actually pair better with stronger like in my brain this is i haven't done research on this maybe somebody smart will at some point they match well with other physically strong players so i mean the Jokic plumley minutes were better defensively than i would have anticipated and then Millsap Jokic i mean in many like Millsap is the lead defender sometimes in those lineups depending on who the other team is trotting out there at the four and the five so yeah i absolutely think that he can up there and Jeremy Grant very good defender did some really nice parts of the Oklahoma City defense last year lots of players deserve praise there but he is a different kind of defender and right. it's possible that Millsap's strength and intelligence with positioning does more to help Jokic than Grant's recovery bounciness type of stuff does right that's a, that's where I was going that's what I was leading into which is that I'm with you and that I liked what Grant provided but OKC last year was they were such an athletic sort of long it was just that classic college team that's just more athletic more jumpy more fast twitch and Millsap I think a lot of his success especially next to Jokic is being physically stout if you will being able to handle certain switches or certain actions that come into the lane very well and being maybe a little bit more awareness driven or IQ driven on some of the kinds of rotations that help him be a strong positive defender so that'll be an interesting thing to uh, look at how it shakes out anything there in addition you want to touch on because otherwise I think maybe we should jump to the Toronto Raptors yeah we can jump to the Raptors and I I presume there we'll start with Kyle Lowry Lowry who just got extended 31 million for the 2020 slash 21 season which will so he's going to be 33 this year Lowry but I think so the age part of it is certainly a component Lowry is a physically strong player sometimes those can age a little better though as I talked about a half step can be important for those types of guys as well but the bigger part is his role is fundamentally different now because the Raptors have fewer creators Kawhi Leonard is not there anymore DeMar DeRozan is not there anymore so they're going to need more from him Patrick McCaw Stanley Johnson Rondé Hollis Jefferson those guys can't do what some of the other players they've had. OG Ananobi, who I love, just isn't that type of guy. 
And so that means they're going to lean more on Lowry, and I'm not sure he has that capacity now. So, by the way, Lowry's actually going to be 34 this year. He's about, I think he's like 33 and a half as of October. He will turn, I think he will turn 34 during the season, but using basketball reference, yeah, because his birthday is in March. So he will turn 34 right. during the season, but it will be his age 34. Right. He, he it will ju- be his age 33. He season. just misses the cutoff. Um, yeah. Right, by by about a month or so. But yeah, everything that you just said, I, I think, is relevant here. So Lowry being a small point guard, there's this thing, there's this sort of uh, statistical pattern historically about small point guards aging. And if you look at age 33 seasons and above, which as you said, this will be Lowry's age 33 season, even though he's going to turn 34 in the middle of the year, um, age 33 season above and guys under six foot three, it's actually very rare for players under six, three who are 33 or older to continue to have success height age as well, as I always say. So looking it up, I went back and looked through my box plus minus model on offense and looked at guys who had a plus 1.5 offensive box plus minus or better in the last 15 seasons since the 2005 rule changes, uh, who were also over 33. And there's only six guards that even did it under 6'4". So Jason Kidd was listed at 6'4". He did it three times. Billups did it twice. He's listed at 6'3". Andre Miller did it twice. He's listed at 6'3". Sam Cassell did it twice. He's listed at 6'3". Someone named Steve Nash did it six times. He just apparently aged very well uh, and was good at basketball. And then Jason Terry was literally the only player in the last 15 years uh, at 6'2 or under to do this. It's very rare to have success as you get older when you're smaller. One of the great historical outliers... John Stockton. And when I look at Lowry, I'm reminded a little bit of Stockton in that they are both very physical, sturdy, strength-based, crafty, grinded-out defensive guards. And nothing about Lowry to me is based on, you know, explosive athleticism or, um, you know, raw quickness even or things like that. I still think he has, he's basically floor-bound. His success comes from being floor-bound, from being crafty, from shooting, from seeing things in the game. And I think those can still all be there. My big two questions for him with him was, one, he has to be mentioned because of his age. And two, what happens if there's some post-title checkout from the Raptors? Now, the extension today might change that, but I think that still needs to be addressed. It also might not because now right, he right. has that money locked right, in. Right, right. And- you get you get that benefit. I mean, we'll see that with players like Draymond Green this year, who happens to be who got his long term money and also is now on a team that is less competitive than the one he was on last year. So yeah, that's an interesting one. I should have mentioned Draymond Green for this, but he was also he had that rough start to last year, and I think we could see something similar this year. So I didn't I didn't think of him in the same context. But yeah, I think that's fair. And also, this will be an ongoing theme if we're going to kind of focus more on the opportunity situation group. Lowry's a little bit different, but with the rest of the Raptors, dependent players who have inferior creators than they did the year before are prone for all sorts of types of regressions and fallbacks because they're just getting worse shots. It's the opposite of Avery Bradley. You know, Bradley's going to play with LeBron James, so he will get better looks. The high, A higher proportion of his shot attempts will be open threes or layups or whatever else because he's playing with LeBron and AD than it was last year either as a Clipper or as a Grizzly. 
the easiest example for me of that other side of the coin are Nicola Batum, Cody Zeller, and Marvin Williams. Basically, every single or anybody else on the Charlotte Hornets, they go from Kemba Walker to Terry Rozier, Terry, and also Tony Parker, presumably to Devontae Graham. That's also a downgrade, even though you know Tony Parker wasn't setting the world on fire his last couple of years. He still, I think, will be better than Devontae was this past year. And so, being a what I call a dependent player offensively should not be seen as a scarlet letter. It's just the way things work for a lot of guys. You know, not not everybody should function with the ball in their hands. It actually doesn't work. We're going to see that with the Knicks this year. So dependent players, though, they their value can just shift and the import can shift so much there that it could end up being a huge deal for all of those all those guys. And why I thought of the Hornets in particular instead of maybe the Raptors is that it's such an obvious downgrade to go from Kemba Walker to Terry Rozier. I'm glad you mentioned the Hornets. I had Batum on my list. Um, he's somehow like only going to be 32. He's age 31 season was 2019. There's another guy who feels like he's been around for a long time. But I also looked at Marvin Williams, didn't end up going deeper on him or didn't really make my cut. But I think both of those guys, for the reasons you just outlined, are interesting candidates to start to take a step back. But another thing with Batum for me is he's just one of those guys that's starting to to blip my eye test radar a little bit in terms of physically wearing down as he gets older. And statistically last year, he did have a huge drop in his load and his offensive responsibilities. He had a drop in his scoring. He had a drop in his playmaking a little bit. Basically everything except his shooting numbers last year uh, took a backwards step. And I wonder if that's going to continue in 2020. Kind of along similar lines for me, one of the hardest declines that I, for me to explain last year was Wayne Ellington. I've been a Wayne Ellington believer for a while. And I mean, he was so important to Miami over the previous couple of years. And then, you know, he, his effectiveness dropped off. He was went from being, you know, in the 56, 58 range for true shooting all the way down to 55 as a member of the Heat. And then it, it went up again when he was on Detroit for the end of the season. But Ellington now, instead of being a useful component of a playoff team with kind of the right structure for him coaching wise or personnel or both now he's a nick and that's going to be a problem for ellington now he's getting paid money and good for him and he got my belief is that he got more from the knicks than he would have somewhere else that is within his rights also ellington age 32 season somebody who does a lot of work off ball coming off screens any slowdown could end up being a factor there so i don't think we need to spend a lot of time on him but i wanted to mention him Interesting. There's one more guy on the Raptors who I think is worth discussing, and that's that's uh, gold medalist Mark Gasol. Absolutely. Who is now going to be, he'll be 35 this January. He obviously played, I thought, very well in the playoffs last, last season, especially on defense. And he was an interesting one for me because if you remember, it kind of got lost in all of the crazy things that happened in 2019, but he came out of the gates in the 2019 season playing like gangbusters. He was phenomenal at the start of the year. And then whether it was uh, some situation where he was displeased with the team in Memphis and, and you know the direction they were going in, or I thought he had a physical ailment that then maybe could have been a problem that just didn't get a lot of attention. He didn't look right physically or maybe wasn't engaged the same way, but he trailed off. And then 
in Toronto in the playoffs still showed that he had a lot of verve left uh, and a lot of punch, especially on defense. But man, not only age 35 for me, but incredibly long summer of basketball with the finals and the FIBA play in the World Cup. And, you know, he won a title. He won two titles. And we know he likes to get the champagne down after he wins the titles. We've we've seen that in the parade. So, yeah, Danny, take it away. We also, I mean, going along with the Raptors, what is the sense of urgency with this team if they are? I mean, I think they're going to be a playoff squad. I don't, I don't really doubt that. But are are they really getting up for that? You know, is that enough for them now that they won a championship? And it doesn't seem like they're going to be in that rarefied air again this year. So Here, here's here's my question: There is it is it ninety four Bulls or two thousand twelve Mavs? Is it you prove something and now there's nothing to prove, or you prove something and now there are doubters because Kawhi has left and. I mean, frankly, I think they have the ability with the bare cupboard in the East to be a top three team, probably. Absolutely. Maybe even if things, yeah. right? <laughs> if, if you want to have if you want to have a dark conversation, I had this with a friend of mine yesterday. Think about the contenders for the third best team in the Eastern Conference, and all of them are teams that have generate serious misgivings. It's just that's the structure of how this works when guys like Kawhi Leonard left the Eastern Conference. Right. Right. So anyway, keep going. Yeah. I didn't mean to. Okay, no, 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 it's totally fine. And and Ibaka kind of along the same lines, not necessarily yep. the, the the just because what. But those guys, what's interesting is because they did not get extended like Kyle Lowry just did. They are playing for contracts, but really, are they? You know, like is Marcus Gasol worrying about another three to five million dollars? He's made a lot in his career, and he can, and if he wants to, it's with it's just totally his right. But I could see Gasol choosing any number of destinations for the remainder of his career, however long he wants that to be. Maybe it's not even that long. Maybe he wants to play like one more year. Maybe he wants to play with his brother. Who knows? And wherever that is. And Ibaka is kind of in the same boat. He's a little bit younger, but it's, you know, like what does he have left to prove in basketball? He won his championship. Maybe he wants to stay. And, And then Toronto has their whole interesting situation with how they're valuing space moving forward. So yeah, I think the Raptors are fascinating with that. A player that has similar challenges but it's exacerbated because we don't know where he's going to be playing this year is Andre Iguodala. Iguodala is fascinating because now with the way that I'm interpreting like from Chris Harrington's reporting and numerous other things with Memphis is that he's basically going to be hanging out until Memphis figures out what they want to do with him and that's interesting because it might be that hanging out actually works to Iguodala's benefit. He's not putting miles on the tires in terms of basketball, though he's obviously hopefully still going to be working out and all that sounds from what I've heard, like that's going to be the case. So maybe it's kind of like last year's Draymond green season, except that the part at the beginning, we just don't see. And so thus it doesn't really exist to us. And he's that's eight, a plus. And he's eight years older. Well, yeah, he's, little, yeah, this is, that little this detail. is Iguodala's age 36 season. And yeah. you think about the, the, the wear that is on his, I mean, because yeah, he's had this big run with the Golden State Warriors, but he also had a long career before that where he was shouldering the burden with one year the Denver Nuggets and the Philadelphia 76ers before that. So having a, you know, whether it's a half year or whatever, we don't know exactly what that's going to be. That could be there. And so in terms of overall impact, it could be toned down. Iguodala is a fascinating figure for a variety of purposes. One of them most notably being, how does this all work out? Because he does generate interest for various teams. I mean, I think he can make a lot of a lot of teams better, especially if they have the right pieces. But remember also that, and this is a really interesting question, both for players inside the Warriors and outside the Warriors, is he got 
let's call it the benefit of the doubt a lot by playing with three Hall of Fame offensive players and a ton of other, you know, defensive stalwarts and everything else. So Iguodala being limited didn't affect the Warriors as much as it would affect basically any other team that has ever existed. And so his reluctance to shoot threes, his strange inefficiency sometimes around the basket, all those sorts of things, other than when he got open dunks, which he still threw down, which was fun. Those sorts of issues matter a lot more when you're not playing alongside Stephen Curry, Clay Thompson, and Kevin Durant. It's a great point. I, I think he's just a classic age-out candidate at this point. And of course, uh, some of it depends. I took a look at him, and I think some of it depends on where you already valued his 2019 season like his his star is been burning out for a while if you will but some of that is such a credit to where he's still valuable because he's so smart uh, so experienced he understands you know defensive value when he needs to make extra passes he's such a great extra passer especially in that golden state system and then just passable shooting on his spot up shots and to your point unless you go to a situation where some of that spot up shooting is still available you're the fourth or fifth sort of option on the court, if you will, on offense at any given time. If you go to a situation where that extra passing, that connective tissue is taken away because you're not playing with certain creators or whatnot, then what's left is maybe just the defense. And I'm not sure, you know, probably has a little bit left in the tank, but yeah, certainly, certainly the situation that he lands in could determine whether or not 2019 was the last time we sort of significantly spoke of Andre Iguodala. The other guy that got a question mark for me, and it's just because I'm not exactly sure how this season's going to work out, is Aaron Baines. Baines, his age 33 season, goes from the Boston Celtics to the Phoenix Suns, a you, significantly... You mean, you mean tippy-toe Baines? Tippy-toe Baines. Yeah. Hey, I, I brought it up in the first I know, part. I, didn't I, know. Think, I didn't think you were going to try to force it in the second part. But I just thought we could go with it as a, as the custom from now on. Yeah, so, so Baines... I could see him being a very positive influence on the Suns and still not having nearly the impact he had on the Celtics last year. I mean, I think that's a fair a fair double. I'm interested in the idea that maybe they're going to play him with DeAndre Ayton a little bit. I, I, you know, the hope is that DeAndre Ayton is a good enough, at least a capable enough center that you don't have to play him with another center because then you lose some of the utility of him being a tall human being, even though Baines can shoot some threes on his tiptoes. And... I wonder just how that's going to work out. Baines is a pending restricted free or pending unrestricted free agent. Sorry, because he picked up that player option, and I, I just don't know. You know, it, it could be a circumstance where it's not necessarily he ages out, but he's just n- not as useful to to his new team. That's why I put him in the situation change category rather than the aging out category. Yeah, makes total sense. I have a, a few guys left, and they're all sort of by design, uh, much bigger names, bigger players who I think have the possibility of starting to sort of age out and age okay, back so, down. Okay, so these are these are not situational-based. These are more physical age parts because I have one more situational one. Let me do a quick scan. Arguably one of them is situational, but it's a combination of a number of factors. So Okay, so I'll do a straight situational because this guy is far too young to have it be age-related. He's actually on the positive side of the aging curve, and that's DeMontis Sabonis. I like Sabonis. I've continued to, but I think that playing him alongside Miles Turner does both of them a disservice on both ends of the floor. Offensively, it just gives each of them less space to operate, particularly in the time when Victor Oladipo's out. It's just going to be hard. I think there's, I think it's going to be more challenging for each of them to get good shots. Sabonis has these weird times where he's a little bit too tentative. J. Michael did a nice video series on this in the Mumbai games. And I wonder, 
how that's going to work out. And then defensively is to me, the underappreciated part of it where it's kind of a hat on a hat, you know, like, okay, you have a second capable rim protector, big whoop. You already had one and you don't really need two there. And when, whether it's Sabonis or Turner, when they get more spaced out on the floor, it just takes them away from the part of the game that they do better defensively. So I could, I could see this being a season where it's not a disaster or anything like that, but Sabonis does not build as positively on what he did before. And, that's just more being a victim of circumstance than anything else. I could have theoretically put Miles Turner here, but I, since I see Turner as more of the centerpiece, the imperative for the Pacers, then that leads me to believe that Sabonis will be the one who suffers the ill effects more. It's 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 a great call out on your part. Not necessarily because I think it's going to happen. I I am somewhat optimistic that this thing can actually work, but I think it's worth bringing up just on the probability alone that if that pairing fizzles a little bit or you have redundancies or all of the things you mentioned, then Sabonis, who's a guy who for the last two seasons has steadily improved, it's possible that, you know, for that circumstance he's in, he essentially takes a step back. Okay, my one other guy who I think circumstance is related to, although it's heavily aged, but there's also some circumstance, and you already mentioned him, and that's Lou Williams. Yeah, that's certainly possible. I mean, this is a very different Clippers lineup than right. before, and they need Lou Williams less than they did last year. Right, and so that was a a that was a big thing. B, I'm not convinced he's going to be on the team after the deadline. And C, you get back into that small guard issue again, where he's going into his age 33 season. He is a smaller guard. He does rely on his quickness heavily to you know sort of operate out of all that pick and roll magic that that he creates and I just think the combination of those things along with the fact that even though we had a really successful year last year uh, at least in my numbers and my model he basically had box score decline in a lot of offensive areas minor box score offensive decline which makes me think I think it's a hint that we could be seeing sort of him moving downward on the aging curve. So all of those things, you know, he's listed at 6'1", not a big guard, age, the the situation he's in, Kawhi and Paul George coming in, not only will that uh, theoretically change the offense, but it's going to change playmaking responsibilities on ball time, all that kind of stuff. I'm, I just think he's a candidate uh, for regression. Yep, I think that's totally reasonable. And uh, so we can move on to more of the physical-based ones, and we've already covered a lot of them for me. Like, my top guys in this category were Blake Griffin, Kyle Lowry, DJ Augustine, and Wes Matthews, all four of whom we've already talked about. So my number five here is Reggie Jackson. Jackson is actually younger than most of the players on this list. Is this, this will be his age 29 season. Remember, it feels like a lifetime ago that he played alongside Russell Westbrook in Oklahoma City. But Jackson played all 82 last year. He has had health stuff in the past, and I could just imagine this being a step back for him. Yeah, I buy it. I looked at him. I I think he's still young enough, and the things he does that he does well are still there. I think if I'm not mistaken, he had one of his better statistical seasons last year, actually. So I just I, I it's interesting that I had the same inclination to look in his direction, but I just didn't think there was enough there for it to really pop for me. But I, I think if health is a you know if health is a thing, and he starts to run into nagging injuries that's always that's always a, a problem well and remember that ja- I, I think that jackson is at least sometimes a poor fit with blake griffin and not that 
Derek Rose is going to solve all of their problems, but they have another guy now. And so maybe that leads to Jackson getting a less favorable spot. And in that less favorable spot, it doesn't do as well. Also remember that last year, Reggie Jackson shot 37% from three. His career high for any other season was 35%. And yeah, he got better looks because of the circumstances, but you could see that tailing off a little bit. And you're right though, that it was, the, it was his best year in terms of true shooting percentage. It wasn't as high in his high in usage, but that's totally fine because there were a bunch of other things that were in play. And I think this was closer to the way that he should actually be used. So I just wanted to mention him for that. The next guy is sort of in a similar boat where situationally you wouldn't necessarily see it, but maybe it's just where he takes a step back, and that's Arsani Ilyasova. Ilyasova, this will be his age 31 season. Every once in a while you hear a murmur about him that he might be a little bit older than that. And also because... I believe that Ilyasova is not as good as some of the other options that the Bucks had. And generally for me, the arc of the moral basketball universe leans towards guys who don't deserve the minutes they get not getting those minutes. Even though Miritic is gone now, he's playing in Europe, which is still amazing to me that he's not going to be in the NBA this year. But guys like DJ Wilson and just some of the other young Bucks, maybe some of those guys can start taking minutes from Ilyasova, who is not a bad player, but is not... A, a hugely necessary part of what they're doing. And also remember they got Robin Lopez. And even though Lopez and Ilyasova don't really play the same position, I've talked about how front court minutes can only be divided so many ways. Huh. It's interesting. I think, uh, I think Ilyasova is going to be taking charges for at least a few more years. I just can't get that. Even if he's older, just there's something about the way he plays that I'm not ready to, uh, I'm not ready to put the fork in him yet. Okay. All right. Um, so my, Maybe time to bring up a guy who we actually talked about on the on the growth potential. The yeah, and, and, and someone who I have on my list with a question mark. Okay, I'm yes, guessing. and I was wondering if you'd have him on both of your lists. I did, and that's Russell Westbrook. Yep, who is only going into his age thirty-one season, but as we briefly touched on in the last episode, he's a guy who I actually think is has to be talked about as a strong candidate to continue to decline. I'm not convinced that's going to happen, but there's a lot on the table here. First, let me start with a a few numbers. His free throw rate a couple years ago was 43%. It went way down to 33% two years ago. Last year, it was 31%. This has happened in conjunction with his mid-range shooting. Uh, Mid-range shooting has gone from like 40 to 37 to... 31% 31% last year. And so my my first big question, because he still is a dynamic, explosive athlete, but when you start to cut away at some of those things, is this fixable if he has a smaller load? Or like was this just the knee injury and lingering things from the knee injury? Is this permanent or can it be turned around? And these are huge questions when you consider Russell Westbrook's remaining contract because, yeah, he's more desirable than Chris Paul. He's he's younger and can play more minutes. But Russell Westbrook, after... So let's just do after this season. After the upcoming season, Russell Westbrook is owed $132.6 million over three seasons. Small chunk if, of change. Yeah, just just a little bit with that with a player option worth $47.1 million in 22-23. He's not going to... Come on, he's not going to take that. $50 oh, million bucks? Yeah, he's, he's not going not gonna <laughs> to lock that in. And so... Incidentally, the same year that his former and now current teammate James Harden has a similarly sized option, but 
he's in a different situation because James Harden is a better player right now than Russell Westbrook and his game will age better than Russell Westbrook's because he can actually shoot. So yeah, Russ is, Russ is fascinating because he had all of the hallmarks for me of a player who will decline. He is heavily reliant on his athleticism, his athleticism, like the, as you said, the, I call them the aggressiveness stats, free throw, free throw, free throw attempt rate. And some of the stuff around getting to the rim, those have toned down from insanely high highs, but they've toned down a little bit. And so, well, more than a little bit in terms of free throw attempt rate. So that's a total reason to expect the decline. And there's no reason to believe that those athleticism-based things will do anything other than dissipate. That's just the way this works for a player like Russell Westbrook as he enters his early 30s. And he, so I, I think all of that will continue. I wonder, and this is one of the more interesting questions for me in the entire NBA this year is, how does transitioning from Oklahoma City's defensive scheme to Houston's defensive scheme change Westbrook? I think that it will actually help him a lot because it's easier to to execute. And his best strength at this point in his defensive repertoire is his strength. So playing bigger guys is not that big a deal for Russ, just like it wasn't for CP, which is incredible considering Chris Paul is a much smaller, more slight human being than Russell Westbrook is. But I think that will help him overall. But again, the the tide is going the other way. And it is very fair to argue that that is more important because it will continue that way. And any improvements that we see based on improved offensive circumstance and maybe improved defensive circumstance, those will be short-term benefits that will eventually dissipate. Yeah, and I like the call-out defensively because I think he could have a good defensive... I think he could have... He, he also has been intensely overrated defensively, and it. he is a great example. And remember, I went to college with Russell Westbrook. I was... You could go back to my, my proto-blog days of Vegan Fish Tacos where I was arguing that he was going to be better than OJ Mayo. Congratulations to 20-something me for being right on that. But a lot of it was the defensive end. It's just that he stopped applying you know start stopped being the same guy attention to detail focus some of that being because his offensive role became something i never saw coming i don't think anybody could have seen that coming right with mvp russ and everything else even even the earlier stages being being what they were it's almost impossible to believe that um, that somebody can burn the candle at both ends the way that he would have been asked to if he was going to be a defensive player but that still doesn't it doesn't excuse it it's just i guess it does a little bit but it's it's a different type of thing and Russ has never been the defensive player that I kind of hoped he would be. And so it has led to Westbrook partisans. And I try not to be like, try not to focus as much on like what the internet says about a guy or anything like that. But with Russ, you get all these arguments like, oh, look at all the steals he generates or the defensive rebounds. And the defensive rebounds are a value add to be sure. Russell Westbrook grabbing a rebound is better than almost anybody else in the NBA grabbing a rebound. However, if the reason you are grabbing some of those rebounds is because your teammates are letting you get them, then you're still providing value, but you are not generating as much of the value as it is when you're getting a contested one. So I think there are a couple of things to unpack there. Uh, I am slightly higher on his defense than a lot of the analytics community or even uh, a lot of sort of hardcores, not because I don't see the problems, but I think for the very reasons that you were talking about his potential. Last year, he did things defensively that were a little more in line with where I see his potential if he were A, healthy, B, engaged, and C, didn't have a huge role. I think the problem that comes in is when you look at steals, defensive rebounds, or any one-number metrics that try to roll those up, box score stats for defense are incredibly limited. 
And so by grabbing all those defensive rebounds, which may have some sort of net value gain in the Oklahoma City system, that's fine to me. It's just that as humans, we can say, ah, not really a big difference between Westbrook grabbing seven boards a game or 11. Is it functionally or impact-wise doesn't make a difference. But a lot of metrics that use that data roll it up, and then you have this like huge, oh, this guy's a triple-double, and he gets all these steals, and his defensive box plus minus is this or that. And so you have, you're prone to massive overrating on that end. So all that is a way of saying that I think – he could have his best defensive year this year if he's healthy. I like the idea that the system helps him potentially. And I, I'm still left with the big question of how healthy is he and can he shoot? Because if you come back to offense, like the best case scenario here is that he can shoot again. He's healthy. He has his best defensive season. He works well in transition. He gives them, I guess, some continuity or uh, you know, second weapon when Harden's on the bench. He works well off ball, and you know, Bob's your uncle. Houston has an ideal year. I think that's in play, and as we talked about last time, shot selection should improve his overall efficiency. But man, my my still my big question marks still come back to that shooting and that sort of physical decline, and that's why I think he's got to be. A, a major candidate to continue to take a step back. A player who has shown fewer signs of this, but it a is a huge potential downside for his team, and it just makes sense is PJ Tucker, Russell Westbrook's teammate. He's pretty PJ old. Tucker, pretty old too. Age thirty four season, and at this point, the Rockets don't have a replacement for PJ Tucker if they want to go to some of the lineups that have worked so well for them. So if so, his is more of a perspective decline. It just makes sense. You know, guys going to their age 34 season often can't be the same force that P.J. Tucker has been. And the kind of the force equals mass times acceleration of these kinds of things for me is impact equals decline times importance. And his importance is extremely high on a potential championship team. So that matters more, even if it is a little bit more theoretical than it is for Russell Westbrook or Kyle Lowry or Wes Matthews. I think that's very well said. Um, I have... One team I want to talk about left, and then one sort of elephant in the room. Who how, you want to you want to go to the next? Like how many do you have left? Sure, I, I have I have two guys left, but okay, one great. of them is really fast. And I just this is just basically going to be a question. Does JJ Barea count? <laughs> Does JJ Barea count? Yeah, I mean, age thirty five season, but he had an Achilles injury in mid January. He is going to play this year. They put, got a bunch of different guys. I mean, I, I think it's possible that the J.J. Barea we know and love is just not around anymore. Yeah, I would only say it doesn't count because he already had the injury, and that, that injury combined with that age and his size make it unlikely that we'll ever see him again, and it was just a, a sort of blunt force injury, if you will, that put an end to that. Yeah, and it, it's a shame. I've, I've loved Barea for such a long time, and he's such a wonderful fit for what Rick Carlisle wants to do on the second unit in Dallas. So it's a possibility. And there's also the chance that J.J. Barea is the, not the exception that proves the rule, but like the exception that proves the exception, where, yeah, he could lose a step or two on offense, but maybe he's just so damn crafty that it doesn't matter. Right. Like, And then defensively, he's already been bad. So it's kind of the Dirk idea that you can, getting that if you're already so bad, getting slightly worse doesn't make that much of a difference. That could be a possibility too. And I love J.J. I hope that's, I hope it works out for him. But I wanted to mention in there. So I really only have one guy. So you should probably go in one direction or the other. Yeah. And I'll do so I want to save my elephant in the room. And the team I wanted to talk about before we get there was the Spurs. 
because mm-hmm. they had they had two guys to me, one of whom I kind of had at the top of my list, essentially, if I if I were ranking these. And it's the obvious guys that you would think of. It's it's DeMar DeRozan on one hand, and then LaMarcus Aldridge, who is going into his age thirty four season. And briefly I'll just start with DeRozan. One of the biggest thing I guess I guess we should have maybe hit this a little bit in circumstances, but I think the rise of a lot of the other young Spurs wingy perimeter kind of players and their continued success and the continued success of the second unit combined with DeRozan's age combined with the idea that he already took fewer free throws last year Um, you know he's going to be in a more egalitarian system what he needs to do is going to his his bread and butter is still dependent on that great athleticism that he had back at SC where he figured out how to shoot over people, he could get to the rim. And I think as that starts to go away, he was he was a candidate for me to take a little bit of a step back this year among all those other players. And then Aldridge, who I can we could probably talk a little bit longer about, but I, I just feel like he's that classic age candidate getting to the end of the end of the road. He doesn't move quite as well. His numbers are all down across the board. His impact metric numbers were down across the board last year. His shooting was down across the board. His free throw numbers were down. Um, so yeah, that, I wanted to mention those two guys. Absolutely. DeRozan f- didn't make my list more because I thought it already happened rather than anything else. But San Antonio, I just because I don't think this can be mentioned enough, how ridiculous and amazing it was that they finished. So last year, San Antonio finished sixth in effective field goal percentage in the entire NBA. They took 26.5% of their shots per cleaning the glass at the rim last year. The next lowest percentage in the entire league was the Golden State Warriors at 30.5%, meaning there was 4% margin between them. There was basically a 4% margin between everybody in Milwaukee who finished second last year to the Lakers. It's just crazy how far behind they were there. They also took the fewest threes in the league last year, and they were sixth in effective field goal percentage. It's absolutely incredible. Right, yeah. I did a video on the the value of the mid-range that a lot of that had to do with looking at the Spurs as a case study. And I think these two guys are specific to that case study. I'm just not sure. It, It takes a lot uh, and and don't get me wrong, those skills are incredibly valuable and you can see what you get from them, but it takes a lot to succeed with those skills. And I think both of these guys are candidates to slowly sort of drip away from that, if you will. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. And San Antonio, I like to use the word ecosystem for this kind of this kind of thing. Their ecosystem is going to be really different this year with DeJounte Murray in. And I think they'll be better defensively, but I think they'll be worse offensively. And how those two movements fair will be extremely important but then also there were a serious regression in the mean candidate with that crazy offense anyway they never turn the ball over that will continue because that's just spurs being spurs but it it is a really challenging tightrope for them to walk and it gets harder when you add in a a less less talented offensive player which i think they did with Dejounte, as great as he is at other parts of the game maybe he'll have improved enough with his jumper but i'll believe it when i see it and so my last guy yeah, I'm, is, I'm excited to hear who this is. I see a lot of parallels, though his his highs have never been as high as Russell Westbrook. But Eric Bledsoe, basically a year younger in terms of basketball reference age, and I think they're about a year apart. He can be an absolute force, a bit far better defensive player than off than than Russell Westbrook, but not the offensive ceiling there. And because now with fewer options on the table with Malcolm Brogdon being gone, this is getting back to that kind of. Force equals decline times importance 
Eric Bledsoe is now more important to the Milwaukee Bucks than he was before. And so any decline that he has, especially offensively, is even more significant. And I and the Bucks are, you know, it's hard to get bigger than the team that I project will have the best regular season record and is a serious contender for the for the NBA championship. I actually think I would argue that they're the most likely NBA finalists. It's just that I have the Clippers as a more likely champion because I think they would just win more finals matchups than the Bucks would. But I mean, so any downgrade for Bledsoe at age 30 becomes a huge deal. I have talked about this a little before. I think the spacing in Milwaukee, the five out and Giannis's gravity really helped Bledsoe's offensive game. It was, you know, he's, he's quick burst and can get to the rim in open space. And I felt that was the most success he had offensively combined with obviously some open shots that he hit every once in a while. And then that fizzles a little bit. You can strangle that a little bit in the postseason and he can potentially be a problem when he's not hitting threes. I, it's an interesting call out because I'm just not sure I, I would if I had to bet, I would bet on a similar kind of season to last year. Maybe the regular season numbers aren't quite as good, but I imagine that he'll still have success in the regular season. He'll still look pretty good. His defensive chops will still be there. And then in the playoffs, I'm just not, I'm not a believer that, that he can really help them a lot in the postseason, but that's no different from this year to last year. So I'm actually, what do you, what do you think specifically, like, is there something you see with him that makes you think that he's, he's going to, take a step back, like elaborate a little bit more on why he was the last guy you wanted to speak about. Well, he wasn't necessarily the last guy, like number one on my list. I want to clarify Sure, sure, that. sure, sure. It's, yeah. it's, so Bledsoe turns 30 in December this year. And he, to me, while his intention and his playing with force is still a factor in it, he is still, I mean, going back even to his Clippers days, athleticism has been a huge part of what he's done so well. And I could just imagine just because it usually happens to players like him around this age. Russell Westbrook, it, it pretty much did. You could call them almost teammates, though, as Fred Katz has reported. OKC, the pick they traded to the Clippers that became Bledsoe was going to be Avery Bradley if they'd kept it. But Bledsoe, just, I, I, if he takes a little bit back defensively, and, and remember, he's spacey defensively, too, sometimes. So those two things can get a little bit dangerous if you're not as, if you don't have the athleticism advantage and you don't have the discipline sometimes. I think that can be a factor. And then if he's not, Bledsoe has always concerned me as a, you know, going back to his days on the Suns, most notably, that he's, I don't love him as a creator for other people. And that becomes a more important part of, of Milwaukee if they try to, it, basically if he needs to, if they, another team is taking Giannis away a little bit more, if they sell out there because now they don't have Brogdon, if George Hill isn't as good, and Wes Matthews isn't that same type of creator at, as Brogdon was either. So yep. there's just more on his plate, and what is on his plate is more important. So it's it's not as much oh, he's just going to be bad this year or anything like that. It's that any shortcomings become more important. And I think those shortcomings already exist and could be more prominent in June than they are right now. Got it. Okay. That, make, that makes sense. Um, the... Yeah, it's not, like, it's not like Blake Griffin or some of these other guys where it's right, like, right, hey, right. this might be, the, you know, like we might be just seeing, we might just be seeing this coming or, yeah, lots of the guys we talked about in the very beginning of this pod. Well, I think the combination, DeAndre. yeah, and I think the combination that you just alluded to where age or athleticism is one thing, but if he's asked to do more or by virtue of having different parts on the court, he doesn't get quite as much that's easy. I'm not sure if people who didn't watch the Bucks a lot last year, I'm not sure if people realize how many 
easy baskets he gets. And I'm, I'm defining that as like open layups, open threes, or he's put in a situation where the lane is empty. The defense is preoccupied with other pieces, whether it's Giannis or Middleton or movement or Lopez as a trail, and he just blows by a guy and gets a layup. Uh, I think that's why he had, I don't remember if he finished, like where he actually finished, but he had crazy high rim field goal percentage for a guard. And I, to me, that wasn't... I can, I can give you the numbers on it. Yeah, please, uh, go ahead. So, he, so Bledsoe shot 73% on <laughs> shots inside three this year, which was his career best by 3%, which is... I mean, 70% is super high, but a lot of that was generated in Milwaukee the year before. Right, right, right So exactly. he could get into that and be honest and everything else. But then the other part that's crazy is he took 38% of his shots at the rim last year. That's basically that was that's not his career high because he had some years with the Clippers where he was around there, but in this kind of part of his career, it's by far his strongest. So I feel like I mentioned an elephant in the room. I just feel like we wouldn't do this topic service if we didn't at least discuss LeBron James before heading out the door. How dare you? But yeah, it's a possibility. <laughs> he I mean. he is uh, going to be thirty five at the end of this calendar season and. Here's here's a couple things to consider. I would say Michael Jordan is very, very well sort of lauded in the community for his age 35 season in 1998. But I think what some people don't realize is that Jordan had a downtick in 98 from the 96 to 97 season. It was like 96 and 97 were pretty comparable, regular season and postseason. And 98 had a little dip, although he, of course, finished very well as a score in the 98 finals, but everything was running on fumes. The Bulls were running on fumes. Pippen's back was causing him problems. Um, Rodman was, you know, there were inconsistencies there. So not that he wasn't great, but there was a little bit of a decline at 35. LeBron to me has learned to play a more floor bound game. And I think his passing is incredible. I think his shooting is better than it's ever been. And so I don't actually think we're going to see a huge drop off. I just think, especially in the regular season, where he's going to probably do less with Anthony Davis, I think it has to be discussed that, I mean, I don't know how long you could keep doing this, but uh, throwing it out there that at age 35, it's likely that we see a little bit more regression from Mr. James. Yeah, I don't want to think it, I don't want to say it, but it is entirely possible. So yeah, it, it's there. And I mean, that is the, you uh, calling it the elf in the room is totally fair, and another huge question for the league this year is just how long and how wide is this window for the Lakers? And it's fundamentally different than the Clippers with Kawhi and Paul George, though those guys have their own injury stuff. They're a lot younger. So I'm really interested in how he sees that, how the Lakers see it. And then even though I don't think it's going to be that huge in his decision, Anthony Davis is going to be a free agent next year. Well, and yep, keep going. And so how does he how does he think about this? That if, let's say, this is a step back year for LeBron, even if it's a step back from the crazy conversations that he has earned a place in to just damn good player at 35, going to 36, 37, and beyond, then that becomes a, you know, that, that becomes something that Anthony Davis needs to think about because of the money that the Lakers have tied up in him in the immediate and just their capacity to improve especially considering all the incidentally the Lakers gave up to acquire Anthony Davis. If if I had to bet money, I would bet that he does not take a step back and it's just it needs to be mentioned, but if again, not only do if I had to bet money, would I bet he didn't take a step back? 
I can see the path to LeBron being really good and playing in this style for a few more years to answer your question about the future. This wouldn't just be a one more year thing. And the reason for that is that he's, as I mentioned, he's shifting his style to a more floor bound game where he uses his weight and size. He kind of reminds me of Carl Malone and something that helped Carl Malone age really well, except there's an, there's an inversion here that's taking place. LeBron is actually shooting more at the hoop. He's still over 70% at the rim because he's still long and powerful and understands angles and has everybody wrapped around his finger. By the way, LeBron shot 78% at the rim in, in 2014. I, I almost almost had to do a double take on that one going back. So it's like there is some decline when you lose superhuman alien kind of athleticism. But his whole shift, Karl Malone at the end of his career, moved away from the hoop and became a better passer. I think LeBron's at his apex passing. I think his shooting is better than it's ever been. And I think he's carving out a style that if he can stay healthy, will support... Like Tom Brady is the corollary that he keeps going back to. Like it'll support this long tail at the end of his aging curve where to answer that big question no it's not like if that works out Anthony Davis and the Lakers have a one-year window it's more like this could be a thing for three or four or five years yeah yeah I mean I I it's interesting I, I just kind of wonder where kind of big picture where where it's going but you're right I mean the and and LeBron's place in the changing NBA is a particularly fascinating topic. I know you've done some work on it, but there's I think there's a lot of fertile ground there as well. Yep, agreed. All right, Danny, anybody else uh, you want to mention before we wrap this up? No, I think that's about it. I think we've I th- and LeBron is an appropriate guy to end on because even even if we both think it's perspective rather than inevitable, his decline could be the most important in the entire league if it happens. Right, right. I just I think for that for that very reason we had to uh, at least acknowledge. The possibility. Um, Danny, thanks so much for, for bearing with me and going through this for a couple hours. I hope it was fun. It absolutely was. Fantastic. And I hope uh, hope we'll talk again soon in the future, either here or on uh, Real GM Radio or... Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Big thanks once again to Danny for coming on. You can follow him on Twitter at Danny LaRue, L-E-R-O-U-X. Of course, he hosts uh, Real GM Radio. He's co-host of Dunked On Podcast. And he writes for the athletic remember i will be sharing the data for the research on this podcast and parts one and two with patreon insiders over on backpicks.com now that's patreon.com slash thinking basketball remember the new updates for the 2020 season that i outlined at the beginning along with a brand new deluxe tier and a discord community really looking forward to that otherwise thanks so much for listening all the way to the end of what is now hours and hours of talking about breakout and regression candidates in 2020 and as always i hope you're having a great day